In this episode, we speak with Devin Smith, the CEO of Arbor Biotechnologies, which is an early stage life sciences company pushing the boundaries of biodiscovery. Arbor has raised over $200 million and is backed by Tomasic and other notable investors. Devin also serves as chairman of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine and advises multiple biotech companies. Previously, he was chief operations officer and head of strategy at Sigalon Therapeutics, a clinical stage biotechnology company. And before that, he was head of operations and strategy medicinal sciences at Pfizer. Arbor's platform employs a diverse set of technologies and techniques, including artificial intelligence, genome sequencing, gene synthesis, and high-throughput screening for accelerating the discovery of proteins for improving human health and sustainability. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Likewise, thank you for the opportunity. As I was mentioning uh, before we hopped on, the area of, of biotech and genetics is not our forte, but there's no better person, I feel like, to have on this podcast to help get me up to speed as well as maybe our broader audience. If it's possible, could we start at how the genetic space has evolved over the last couple of decades? I did work on a deal maybe like one and a half decades ago where the name that people like to talk about was Craig Venter, and he seemed to be associated with a lot of the developments at the time. So maybe we could just hear a little bit about the history, and then we'll head into Arbor Biotech. Okay, that sounds great. I would say the 90s were this time where there was a lot of excitement about the human genome and the human genome project. And so you had two competing approaches. You had the government-funded approach, and then you had Craig Venter and his approach both of which were trying to sequence of the human genome. It took about 10 years and probably billion dollars, a lot of money to get there. And they finished it about the same time. They called it a draw. And you subsequently had almost a complete sequence of the human genome done by two different groups. Now, I think at the time there was a lot of prediction this was going to revolutionize everything and the world would change in the next couple of years. Unfortunately, I think in biotech and pharma, it, it takes a little longer than a couple of years to go from interesting data to true drugs. And so I think over that 2000 to 2010 timeframe, I think there was a lot of efforts put into understanding what did that data mean? What was the real output of the data? There were other efforts underway to look at sequencing folks in places like Iceland and other areas where you could begin to tease out genetic differences and begin to tie mutations to disease. I think having this broad access to the data allowed us to really begin to identify what were the underlying DNA challenges, if you will, or mutations that were driving diseases. I think as we understood that more, suddenly in the last decade, you've begun to have more and more drugs that have been developed that are tailored to a specific mutation. There's quite a few in cancer now where I think 20 years ago, cancer was a disease that was diagnosed and you were staged by looking at tissue. It's this type of tumor in the lung. 
and it's stage X. Now, because of the whole genetic revolution, now we've begun to tease out, okay, these are the underlying mutations in the tumor. Therefore, there are drugs available that may treat that particular mutation. So it's completely, I think, begun to revolutionize how we think about treating patients in cancer as well as in other diseases where as we understand more of the underlying biology, we can now create medicines that target that. So that's sort of through 2010. I think the other two big shifts scientifically in the mid to late 2000s, you had the development of what are called induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS cells for short. So this is the ability to take a cell from any person or creature and turn it into a stem cell, which you know gets around any ethical issues around embryonic stem cells, but in addition allows us to really begin to tease out more understanding of the biology as well as think about different ways of treating disease. The second big discovery was CRISPR in the early 2010s. And that has fundamentally changed how we think about things in two aspects. One, it's revolutionized the lab work that's done. It's sped up and made allowed folks to be able to do things much quicker, whether it's an academic lab or a company lab. Secondly, is now matured to where we can actually develop therapies using this technology. So that's kind of the 20-year evolution with you know some of those revolutionary points in between. That's super helpful. And then what would be the most widespread use of a genetic medicine? Was there a, a first use which now is commonly prescribed? That's a great question. I think probably the earliest is a drug called Gleevec, which I think came out in the mid-2000s. And it was targeted to a specific chromosomal aberration that occurred in CML or chronic myelogenous leukemia. And I think that was probably the first real tailored medicine. I think since then, there's been quite a few in oncology as well as uh, genetic medicines in other areas. So you know, recently, we had the approval of a gene therapy from Biomarin for hemophilia type A, or a factor, was a factor eight mutation that renders the patients unable to uh, clot appropriately. Historically, they've been treated with exogenous factor, you know, basically get an infusion a couple times a week. But now with this new genetic medicine, you can actually be treated with it and then effectively, at least so far, be factor free. So not having to take those exogenous factors for several years. Mm -hmm. How are the participants in the industry moving? Where are they focusing? Is it what are the most lethal kind of diseases out there and they're kind of approaching those first? Or, okay, what technology do we have readily available and what can we apply that to? What's driving the innovation? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you've got two components to it. One is the understanding of genetic diseases as a big driver, whether, you know, what are the underlying drivers of particular types of tumors? What are the underlying drivers of rare genetic diseases where most genetic diseases tend to be rare? I think those are two of the big areas right now folks are focusing on. I think particularly as we think about genetic medicines using a CRISPR-based approach, you know, we want to start in these rare indications for a couple of reasons. One, the, the unmet need or the patient's outcomes tend to be just terrible. They're, you know, they need something today to treat it. Secondly, it also gives us the ability to understand how do we develop these types of medicines? How do we think about safety? How do we think about the manufacturing, all these pieces that are fairly challenging to work out technically and scientifically. Once we understand those components and we feel like we can routinely 
create and develop these types of medicines, then we can really start to think about broader disease areas where things like Alzheimer's or other large diseases where maybe the genetics aren't often as clear cut, but there's some clear opportunities to do some things using something like a CRISPR. But we also want to make sure that we have a really good handle on the safety, the efficacy, and how to manufacture it efficiently before we really move to those bigger areas. You know, I'm fascinated by Arbor Biotech. What it seems like is you have created this sophisticated tool or, you know, machine to enable you to maybe treat a lot of different diseases, ailments, et cetera, because of the data you have, because of the, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Let's head into Arbor Biotech and what it's all about. You've raised, you know, significant capital. So we'll get to that later, but let's talk about Arbor. Yeah, so Arbor was founded uh, about six years ago by Fong Zhang. So Fong, for folks who may not be familiar with his name, is one of the CRISPR pioneers here from the MIT and Broad Institute. And uh, David Walt, who is also from the uh, Harvard-MIT area, David had co-founded uh, Illumina, which makes these giant sequencers that are used by many of us today, as well as other companies. So the two got together. And at that point in time, the CRISPR space was really limited to a single enzyme called Cas9. And I think as we began to generate more and more data from bacteria, it became clear there's probably thousands of unique CRISPR systems out there that may provide better, different approaches to thinking about gene editing or editing the human genome beyond what Cas9 can do. And so that was the underpinnings for the uh, founding of Arbor. And so we've created, as you said, a discovery approach that allows us to identify novel, interesting systems from bacteria, pull those out, engineer them and characterize them to turn them into putative therapies. And using you know, some of these machine learning AI capabilities that are important to help us very quickly identify systems, characterize them and engineer them. The other piece that's important is that as we become more sophisticated in thinking about genetic disease, it's also become clear that having a single approach is not going to be sufficient and that you need multiple different enzymes and editing approaches to really affect the broad range of genetic diseases out there. Because in some cases, you may have a disease that you have to fix a single letter of the alphabet. The genetic alphabet is reminders A, G, C, T, and you may have to just change one of those letters that is, has a mutation. Other diseases, there may be what happens is you get these repeats that just repeat. And uh, suddenly a normal person may have 50, but a person with, say, Huntington's disease can have thousands of these repeats, which causes disease. So in that case, changing one nucleotide is not going to help you. You need to cut out that particular region to remove it so you restore normal functionality. So you need a different approach there. And so it depends on the approach you need to take. Therefore, you need to have a toolbox or range of tools that allows you to effectively be able to impact all the different diseases out there. So that's been a key piece for us is building that toolbox so we can enable treatments for the wide range of genetic diseases that exist. When we talk about cutting and fixing, how does that actually happen? Does the patient ingest a pill and the pill then does all the work to do that? So the way it works is we'll take liver disease, for example, if you want to do something in the liver. And in that particular case, we actually utilize a lipid nanoparticle or an LNP. So as a reminder, 
lipid nanoparticles were the mode of delivery for the COVID vaccines. So they would place the mRNA or a piece of RNA in the LMP and then inject it, and that would give you the immune response for the COVID vaccines. In this case, we utilize that lipid nanoparticle, and inside that particle, we put two things. We put in an, a messenger RNA that encodes for the nuclease, the scissors that do the molecular cutting, and then you put in there a short piece that is called the guide, and the guide tells the molecular scissors where to cut on the DNA in the patient. So in that particular case, it would be an infusion, so an IV intravenous infusion into the body, and then the lipid nanoparticle would go to the liver, move into the cells. The molecular scissors would then be told where to go, and they would go and cut or you know whatever they need to do to the DNA, cut or remove, replace, and then it would be gone because an mRNA is transient, and you know within a couple of days, everything's gone, and hopefully you have done enough editing to the liver to restore normal functionality. So that's an example of how the therapeutic could work. You know, I'd like to kind of backtrack and talk about your background because it's a very accomplished and, and impressive one and, and clearly showcases your expertise in this whole area. I mean, how far back should we go? I mean, you, you did your PhD at Harvard Medical School. Maybe we could start around that time. Okay. So first, I, I was raised in a, in a rural town in a very large family. So we had a lot of farm animals and such. And I was always fascinated by genetics. We had a lot of chickens and you could take two different types of chickens and breed them and incubate the eggs and the chicks would look very different, like an amalgamation. So those types of things are fascinating as an 11 or 12 year old that you know science could really do a lot. So that fascination with science carried through to the, the PhD at Harvard, where there I studied what were the molecular mechanisms for why your stomach looks so different from your small intestine. So in an embryo, it looks like a tube or a little hose. And then suddenly as the embryo develops, you get the stomach expanding into a bag and the intestine lengthening, becoming a, you know, almost like a giant spaghetti noodle, if you will. They have very different functions and very different cells inside. And so understanding and studying what were the genetic drivers of the different morphologies or why you had these two different tissues was a lot of what my PhD was about. And from there, I loved doing the science, but I also loved thinking about how do you translate the science into therapies. And so after the PhD, I went and joined a strategy consulting firm where I wanted to learn the business side of science a bit more so I could begin to understand how do you translate interesting science into a therapeutic. So I did that for about eight years. I learned a tremendous amount about the industry from pharmaceutical companies to startups and everything in between, and then joined Pfizer in 2009 and spent about a decade there. Spent a lot of time at Pfizer thinking about strategies for drug development. Spent a couple years in the UK with Pfizer as COO of their regenerative medicine or stem cell unit, where we brought a couple of novel cell therapies into the clinic. And while there, really enjoyed the broad range of approaches to thinking about and developing new medicines. I left Pfizer and joined a, a small startup here in the Cambridge Mass area, utilizing cells to treat disease. And in this case, we were taking these IPS, these cells I talked about, in a pluripotent stem cell, and you can differentiate that cell over a course of time into a beta cell. So beta cells 
are the part of our pancreas that is responsible for insulin secretion and, and functioning. And so you can do that. You can create these stem cells and then place those back into the body of patients with type 1 diabetes to you know, provide hopefully what becomes a functional cure. So that was the goal and approach that we were taking at that company. That company did a large partnership with Eli Lilly and subsequently was just acquired by Eli Lilly about a month and a half ago. And you know that work continues. So I think it's a fascinating demonstration of the scientific ability to take a cell that's kind of a generic stem cell and turn that into a beta cell is, is just astounding that we have that capability today to really replace functionality. So that was the journey from PhD through to Arbor, where I joined about two and a half years ago. Got it. That's helpful. And then you're also the chairman of Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. That sounds like a fairly large organization. It is. It's the industry group for all the cell therapy, gene therapy, and gene editing companies. I believe there's about 450 companies that are members. And its focus is how do we sort of help prepare and work with the FDA and the government to think about these novel treatments? Because if you think about historically, drugs have usually been made to treat symptoms or they may sort of help a little bit, but it's usually a chronic therapy. You take it once a day or once a month injection or whatever it may be. These new therapies are completely turning that on its head because suddenly it's a one-and-done approach in some cases. Like you're treated and that's it. You know, you don't have to continue, you know, the daily pill or the injections. And that's revolutionary for patients, but it's a complete change of thought for how do you pay and reimburse and think about the regulatory elements of it. So ARM has an important role to help educate and work and partner with, whether it's the FDA or other organizations, to help think through how do we need to think differently and, and deal with these novel approaches that are so revolutionary so that we can make sure we have safe medicines that work well, but also that are accessible to everyone. So I think that's one of the principal roles of, of ARM. And so it's been a wonderful experience to work with other senior leaders across different organizations in the biotech industry and, and think about how can we continue to help the entire industry move forward. Mm -hmm. When you said one and done, it, it triggered this thought of, you know, treating for longevity. So extending health span and lifespan. And then I thought, oh, well, maybe by fixing all these other ailments, that's what, in effect, what you're doing. Do you have a separate kind of line where you think about longevity? Yeah. So if I think about the work we're doing at Arbor, where we can fundamentally alter disease pathologies at the DNA level, you know, it's not impossible to think in the future at some point that you go in and you have your DNA sequence and, you know, you have your sequence, physician looks at it and there's identified, you know, 10 or 15 different mutations you may have that need to be fixed or corrections made. And it, you go get the 10 or 15 injections and you're all set so that, you know, you won't get high cholesterol. You're not going to get Alzheimer's. You're not going to get whatever may be the case. That will fundamentally impact lifespan, to your point. And then the question is, what's next, right? It feels like once we expand lifespan, you know, extends, then some other new ailment comes in that we've never seen before because no one ever lived long enough to get that ailment. And so it will be a constant, I think, piece of work to figure out how do we improve lifespan for everyone at the same time, making sure that quality is there as well as we age. Because mm -hmm. extending lifespan five years, but it's five miserable years is probably not helpful. But so I think there is a real opportunity, I think, for these new therapies. And it's something, you know, at Arbor we're keenly aware of if we can really fundamentally prevent and treat some of these 
ailments, you can completely revolutionize the way we think about lifespan and healthy living for folks. We're coming up on time. I do have two final questions. Before we get to that, I always like to talk a little bit about investors. And you've got some well-known names on your cap table. Can you share with us a little bit about how they've kind of added value to the organization? Our last fundraise was done in the end of 2021. And one of the key pieces for us as we talked to a variety of investors, there's tremendous interest from investors because of, I think, the revolutionary nature of what we're doing. And it was really around how can they help us, you know, not only financially, but what else can they bring to the table? And I think we've got some really wonderful investors who are very supportive. They're willing to give feedback on thinking about the science, thinking about the plans we have, willing to engage and help in thinking about potential partnerships. So our investors have been fantastic, and we, we really do appreciate the help they give us. Excellent. Okay, so the first of the last two questions is, can you tell us about a person who has had uh, you know profound influence on you? So I would say if I think about it from a professional realm, you know, the one person I think who's had a huge influence on me was one of my bosses at Pfizer. Her name's Ruth McKernan. It was in the UK, and she's an extremely well-known figure in the biotech pharma space there. And you know, every once in a while, you get a boss that just fundamentally makes you rethink how you do things and makes you a much better employee and leader, but also a better person. And, and she was one of those that just profoundly impacted me for the positive on that side. Fantastic. Last question. Could you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? I mean, the, the cause is really Arbor, but I mean, I guess sometimes I ask this question because someone's in a different space you know, other than health. So is there yeah, another I mean, area? I would say, you know, one of the things that Arbor that we've tried to do is make sure that we impact the broader world and broader community. And one of the things that we've been very passionate about is how do we extend opportunities for those who grow up less fortunate, you know, in, in the local area. So either folks who come from underrepresented minorities or other areas, how do we provide opportunities and, and partnering with organizations that allow internships and these other pieces that can bring opportunities for these folks? And, you know, many we've hired. And so it's been just a real important piece of the work we do to make sure that we can broaden, I think, the pool of talent in the biotech space. And importantly, provide opportunities for folks who probably didn't realize there was opportunity there and really help kind of reshape their lives so they can see there's these opportunities and they can influence others in their peer groups. So that's been, I think, a real important place for me and I think for Arbor as well, where we put a lot of effort. Excellent. And lastly, I've read that you're a climber. Yeah. So my son, who's 17, loves to do a lot of climbing. So we've done a lot of summits a lot of winter summiting, which is you know a unique experience in itself. And so, yes, it's been a lot of fun to do those types of things. And I will say I'm terrified of heights. So it's been a wonderful way to get over that or uh, challenge your fear. Because I think a lot of climbing, if, if you do it, RJ, is, is mental. There's such a mental game there. And it's a great lesson for life that a lot of what we do, we can do it physically. It's just getting over the mental barriers we have. Yeah, my daughter's into climbing and I would envision a time where we're climbing together, but I have to get in shape and you know, in order to be able to hang with her. Devin, wanna thank you again for taking the time. This was super insightful and I know our audience will enjoy listening to it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay.